Hey everyone, this is Tom Salami. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. It's great to have you here. We're going to look at the hospital at home movement by speaking with Leslie Trigg, the CEO of Outset Medical. Leslie is uh, one of my favorite people in medtech. She and I worked on a conference a few years ago, and I always enjoy speaking with her. I particularly love the strong passion she has for medtech. She takes medtech very seriously, but she doesn't take her own self as seriously, and she has some some humorous anecdotes in this interview. But I really wanted to drill down and explore Outset's creation of Tableau, which is a dialysis system that can be used at home. But the whole idea was to free up dialysis patients, in Leslie's words, to help restore their sense of self by freeing them of the schedules of dialysis clinics, letting them do dialysis when they can do it. This is a, a concept that we're seeing in other areas of medtech, Again, with the whole hospital at home movement. So I want to talk with Leslie about uh, what that involved for Outset and what it could mean for other sectors. And it was, uh, again, a, a, great, a great conversation. Uh, Leslie has uh, a lot of great observations on the space. But before we begin the interview, I wanted to let you know that registration for Device Talks Boston opens up on Tuesday, January 25th. So we'll have uh, an early agenda up there. We've already got speakers up there. We have our advisors up there. And uh, we would really be great to see you in Boston, May 10th and 11th at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. So go to devicetalks.com to register for Device Talks Boston. Now, let's begin this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Newmarker, you're back. Newmarker is back. Back in the house. Good to, good to be here, Tom. How are uh, how are things on the home front? You know, things are going well. We uh, Parents of young children like myself got a break in Minnesota. The state authorities lessened some quarantine rules, so that, that's good. So you're going to shove them out the door, huh? No, I'm sending them to <laughs> like learn their ABCs and get a good education. I'm preparing them for life, Tom. That's, that's right. Preparing them for life. A lot of life lessons. They have to take over the uh, mass device website someday, right? There you go. Like, I mean, uh, things they could aspire to, right? <laughs> so you and I are both uh, both on a tight schedule. So I think we'll just uh, yeah. forego our, our usual delightful banter. Although I must let you know that uh, someone did ask me this morning if your grill is out, if you're still grilling in the wintertime, or if you... This came up earlier where someone suggested that you said you do not grill in the wintertime and you took umbrage to that comment i mean i would say right now it is uh it's five below outside as we're talking so i am not <laughs> grilling outside right now i don't want to freeze to death while i uh while i grill but there, there might be a few hardcore minnesota listeners who are like like what do you mean i was i was grilling out you know some pork chops yesterday but no no i'm not grilling right now we'll allow that negative five is uh is not the best grilling weather but Five is a great number for the top five stories of the week. It's good, it's good, good pot roast weather, not, not exactly. good grilling weather. So, so let us move into the uh, the new markers, <laughs> newsmakers, your top five stories of this week. Well, I got a surprise a, for you, Tom. I got a surprise. Yeah. Number so number five. Yeah, just so people understand, you, you do send uh, me the headlines prior to our calls, so I at least 
I'm aware of where we're going, but this week... You mean you're not like totally knowledgeable about every article I share with you before we talk I about it? I have the deepest understanding of the medtech. I just draw from years, decades, decades of experiences. But uh, no, you you said on Slack, number five is a surprise. So I'm number, waiting. Number five um, is uh, is another uh, like fun feature that we rolled out from our big 100 project, uh, you know, from the end of last year. And uh, this is a, a chart that we got posted up on medical design and outsourcing a mass device that uh, lists the uh, top R&D spenders in medtech, and not just by how much they spend, but mm. by uh, how much they spend as a percentage of revenue. So, I mean, just make a guess. I mean, who do you think, uh, any guesses on who's near the top of the list for companies that spend as a percentage of revenue? Like these companies are spending a good portion of their revenue on uh you know pouring that back into research oh so we're and and is there a minimum size of company i imagine there must be like a revenue floor that you're least above this yeah i'd say the bottom of the big 100 is like oh gosh 100 million or you know a year so i mean yeah these aren't yeah these aren't like tiny you know like early small companies i mean like i'd like to make a few million dollars a year but i mean for company (laughs) that's a small company to make a few million dollars a year Uh, you know but uh, i'm i'm because you're asking me that way my head says medtronic but my heart is saying edwards life science you know what i mean yeah i mean medtronic as far as like total spend I mean, Medtronic is is at the top of the list. Yeah. I mean, they they spent nearly two point five billion dollars on research in their in their most recent fiscal year. But yeah, when you talk about you know as a um, when you look at all those largest spenders, uh, the one that uh, is spending the most as percentage of of their revenue is is Edwards. Yoo-hoo! That was that was really good, Tom. I mean, they're number six on the list uh, for like. You know, you know, as like, you know, spending by percentage of revenue, but I mean, they're there. I mean, you know, I mean, they're number nine by total spend. They're number six by like spend as percentage of revenue. I mean, they spend, uh, you know, their R&D spending um, is like more than 17.3% of uh, of their revenue. And, uh, you know, I, you know, it, I, it, it, it seems to translate well for them. I mean, they're like, arguably like the, I mean, they're, they're definitely like the big player in the Taver space. Um, I mean, Medtronic's definitely been, you know, grabbing market share in the U.S., but they're still like, I mean, Edwards is just like a dominant, you know, company there. They're doing all kinds of other things with uh, catheter delivered valves, um, all kinds of, and many other really neat things. So, I mean, yeah. Very yeah, cool. Edwards is right there. All right, all right. Uh, do you want to hear the rest of the, the, the top five that are above them? I do. But before we do that, I want to remind kids out there who are listening, follow your heart. When your heart says something, go with go with your right. gut. Trust the gut. Go with the gut. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Remember that, that's kids. Right. What are, What are some of the other noteworthy uh, mentions on this? Uh, most excellent list, and, and you'll have to tell people precisely where to find it. Yeah, you gotta find. You can find this. You know, right now, just right on uh, MDO's Medical Design Outsourcing's homepage. I mean, it's uh, these these med tech companies care a lot about research, and uh, you know the, uh, the the ones. And we got a whole list here with about forty companies. So, I mean, this is a good good list to really see like who's spending a lot on um, R and D as a percentage of revenue. Um, you know, we've got uh, at the top Glaucos, um, you know, which I mean, they're doing a, a lot of neat things with uh, stents in the eyes. Uh, Novocure, mm-hmm. Inspire Medical Systems is number three. Uh, uh-huh. You know, they've got uh, some implantable Neuromod Tech for you know, treating sleep apnea. We got Atricure number four. And, you know, we got Dexcom at uh, a number five, you know, which, uh, you know, we're you know, that that's one of the you know big uh, product launches we're expecting this year is the uh, G7 CGM out of Dexcom. So you know, they've been uh, that's a great uh, list. Yeah, we'll we'll have Tim Herbert, the CEO of Inspire, at uh, Device Talks Minnesota. 
And uh, we'll have uh, Dexcom on an upcoming uh, Device Talks Weekly. I was, so, I was uh, just earlier today reading a uh, Star Tribune Minneapolis story about how uh, Inspire's uh, revenue doubled in the in the past year. So, I mean, definitely definitely a hot company around the Twin Cities here. Well, I think the Phillips recall probably uh, gave that a little boost. What do you think? A little juice? You know, I, I want to be uh, I want to be surprised. I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. we have one of the largest uh, respiratory device makers having just this big big awful recall like uh might, might have gotten some people saying like hey maybe i'll just uh you know get this pacemaker like device to, the, they can get mm-hmm. this treated for me so yeah yeah that is that is interesting definitely an appealing option uh as opposed to having the the cpap machine though uh, resume's doing very excellent you know selling and, their, selling their and just talking so. about these like pacemaker like devices that like gently zap things in your body um i mean number four on our list is uh, medtronic um, they were, you know, touting new three-month data on, uh, you know, about how like uh, their uh, DTM spinal cord stimulation therapy could provide meaningful pain relief, uh, you know, you know, f- you know, f- from that spinal cord uh, stimulation, you know. So like this is, uh, you know, you know, uh, therapy for, uh, you know, back or or leg pain. So so that's just another another example of, uh, you know, of, of this kind of like implantable you know neurostem uh you know some some news on that front as well so that was that was a professional segue right there chris newmarker moving from oh, thank you, you know, I, learned, <laughs> I learned from the best tom I learned oh from the best. my goodness i'm like oh my god that was seamless i was just watching it swish through the hoop and that was that was very impressive so i didn't even get to say nothing but net. i didn't get to scream out the number so now we'll say number three what's number three number the new three on the list uh okay so number three on the list um Actually, yeah, this is uh, this is some more neurostem news. Actually, I got done another another little segue here. Uh, we got a uh, uh, neurometrics uh, winning uh, an FDA breakthrough uh, designation for their uh, Quell device to treat uh, certain chemo side effects. So you know, the, uh, some interesting news. I mean, this is an implantable course. I mean, the uh, the Quell device is you know something that uh, that works on the outside for uh, pain for pain relief. Uh, but, um, I mean, you know, gosh, unfortunately there's, uh, there's a lot of people out there, uh, you know, can- cancer is a big, terrible disease. And there are a lot of people, uh, you know, with the, you know, need chemo and, um, you know, if, uh, they move, you know, forward, you know, you know, with the, with regulators on this, um, this could, uh, you know, this could be a big, big new market for their device. That's fantastic. No, you're right. We talk so much about, uh, about COVID. We forget about, there's no shortage of other Horrible, yes. horrible situations, horrible diseases out there. So it's great that uh, that they got the the FDA breakthrough designation. All right, let yeah, us absolutely uh, let us move on to to number two. Yeah, some really uh, some really uh, interesting news uh, from uh, Augmentix. Uh, they're uh, they're bringing in the uh, former uh, CEO of Barty DX, Kevin Hikes, as their uh, new CEO. So uh, really, really neat hire. That is a great hire, and Kevin Hikes is a, is a is a really good guy. He worked as a co chair at a medtech conference that I did in Minneapolis uh, for a couple of years, and uh, super nice man. Has had some great success leading companies, so this is a, a, a terrific hire for uh, for Augmentics. Yeah, and just for people who don't know a lot about this Chicago-based company, they've uh, got their uh, FDA cleared uh, X Vision Spine System, which uh, provides uh, augmented reality uh, guidance. So, so yeah, so interesting technology, uh, you know, bringing on uh, somebody really notable, uh, you know, in the med tech scene as their, uh, as their new CEO and we need to follow where things go with them. 
Absolutely. All right. Well, let us uh, roll to number one. I know we both have a hard stop. So what is number yeah. one on the new Marcus Newsmakers you know, list? You know, number one on the list, uh, this, is, this is a little, uh, you know, more uh, bad news uh, where there was a word out of uh, Acutus yeah. Medical. They, uh, you know, they uh, announced that they're uh, undertaking a, a corporate restructuring that includes uh, that includes layoffs. Uh, and uh, they didn't uh, disclose to us how many uh, people they're, they're letting go. But um, it was uh, subject to Warren Act. That means that, you know, involves more than uh, than 50 people. But uh, their, uh, you know, CEO was saying that, you know, they've you know, undertaking a detailed review of strategic priorities. And, you know, this is, they're kind of, uh, you know, doing some stuff to, you know, streamline the operation and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, ensure that they've uh, got, uh, you know, some, some good, good fiscal uh, health going forward. Their, you know, CEO is talking about the strengthening the, the company's foundation. So, so some, um, yeah, so yeah, it's a, a tough one. Uh, I mean, you hear about some people being laid off, but, um, it comes at an interesting time, though, with Medtronic uh, paying close to a million or actually over a million for Afera, the, uh, the, the cardiac arrhythmia mapping company uh, in the Boston area. Right. And uh, between their Medtronic's pulse field ablation, Boston Scientific, of course, uh, acquired Farapulse, which was founded by uh, Steve Mickelson, who is now CTO at uh, Acutus. So uh, it's a space that's heating up, um, and it's interesting to see. Acute is taking these steps at this time. I don't know how it ultimately play out. Yeah, I mean they just did an IPO two right. years ago, so so they. Uh, but you know that that's another thing. You're a publicly traded company, and you know sometimes uh, you know, the markets, uh, you know, uh, you know that, that that's something that the the markets like to see out of a publicly traded company is like, oh, we're you know, looking at our spending or whatnot. So um, definitely, yeah. definitely a lot more scrutiny. All right, great list, Chris Newmarker. Thanks, I try. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot of news. It's just amazing. Like in these times, like we, there's just, uh, you know, so much uh, news turning through mass device right now with the industry. It's not slowing down anytime. Leslie Trigg, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. I was listening to the episode we recorded back in uh, October, I think 1900. No, actually it was 2020, <laughs> but it, <laughs> it felt like so long ago. Little Tom, Leslie talking about things such <laughs> a different period in time, but here we are. We're now January 2022, and I'm excited to catch up about uh, Outset's progress. We have a lot to talk about. But in listening to that previous episode, I realized I hadn't asked you what I asked most people, which was about your path into the medtech industry. What drew you into, into medtech initially? Well, what drew me into medtech was that nobody wanted to hire me in biotech. <laughs> <laughs> it was, let's say, a, a path of necessity. No, all kidding aside. So after I graduated from undergrad, I worked for a, kind of a PR lobbying firm in Washington. And I had a client, I was assigned a client that at the time had devised, actually sort of coming full circle, interestingly, um, it was something for the home. It was, a, it was a, the first home test for HIV. And that probably most immediately piqued my interest in just healthcare broadly, but um, went to business school and then fast forward. It was my heart's desire to work at the Genentechs of the world, Chiron at that time, you know, biotech was really in some ways still in its infancy uh, compared to where it is today, but, but a very, very hot field. And frankly, I just couldn't get a second interview. I got first interviews probably because they were just on campus in general, but I never got second interviews and, and I was just not that competitive with a liberal arts undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> I spoke in, in words, not molecules, but in any event. A friend of a friend, complete serendipity, said, hey, I know this guy who works at this company, Guidant. What's that? I think it's something with like medical devices or like something, equipment. So that was good enough for me. And at that point, 
I was very open-minded about getting a job period. I, at one point, by the way, had also interviewed with a wheelchair company and was also not invited back for a second interview. So <laughs> I'll give you some sense of things. This is going to be an inspirational podcast for people out there. <laughs> Look at her now, folks. A high-powered CEO of publicly traded metal device company. by the, a wheelchair company. <laughs> Sadly, very, very true. <laughs> So Guidant is uh, is a nice uh, consolation prize uh, joining that company. This was at a time in, in, in the same era I started covering this industry. And you're right. It was a time actually when people would conflate med tech and biotech. Like med tech was like a subset of biotech. It's like, oh, yeah. biotech, they do all this different kind of stuff. So it, it def- we definitely have different identities now. Talk to a bit about Guidant. I always jokingly try to get people to badmouth their Guidant experience. And I've been unsuccessful so far, and maybe I'm unsuccessful because I always set it up with that question that way. But what was your experience in Guidant like, assuming you enjoyed yourself? And if you did, what made it a special company? That's really interesting that you've never talked with anybody. I'm sure you've talked to many people from Guidant because it was really a, a prolific talent machine. It's really interesting that you've never talked with anybody who had anything bad to say about it. And I won't do anything. To, I won't be able to break your streak. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I mean, it's not the way you set up the question. I mean, I, I really did have a phenomenal experience there. And that starts with uh, with Ginger Graham. I remember so distinctly the first kind of all company meeting that I sat in on. Again, I was like a super lowly product manager, right? Like months out of business school, didn't know anything about healthcare, med tech, anything. But I remember just being instantly, really, I was marveling at her ability to kind of fly at two altitudes, many altitudes, knowing the names of, I, it seemed to me like every single assembler on the manufacturing floor to being able to, to articulate strategy and listening to her earnings calls and being able to cover the gamut of many, many different products at many different stages of clinical and commercial development. And I just thought that was amazing and something that I wanted to try to achieve in my career. Mm-hmm. And so it starts with Ginger, but Every single individual I worked with at Guidant, number one, I remember truly cared, absolutely wanted to do the right thing, which isn't to say that that the company didn't make mistakes or that that the wrong thing was done sometimes, but really wanting to do the right thing, wanting to do things well, and having an ambition around where the company was headed over the next couple of years, which was always very articulated very well. And I think that the the leadership there kind of led from the place of of why before what. Those are some of my observations. And just if you would just kind of walk me through your time after Guidant in MedTech. I mean, what were some of the, the high points that sort of got you to where you are today? You don't have to go through every stop, but what were two or three high points? Well, I was very, uh, very happy and, and fulfilled at Guidant. I'd only been there about two years, but somebody at Guidant had moved over to a startup in the breast cancer diagnostic space. That it actually a company that had been founded by, at the time, a very, very well-known, I'd say, famous breast surgeon, uh, Dr. Susan Love. She'd written mm-hmm. many books. She was on GMA and the whole, the whole bit. So that is what really lured me over to and out of big companies and into the startup um, landscape. What I immediately embraced and loved and then couldn't live without in the startup environment was the chance to play every position on the court. Not every mm-hmm. day, but you know, you just, just the exposure. I think that for people starting in med tech, a bigger company is a wonderful place to start. You learn what good looks like at scale. After a big company though, of course, I will be the biggest proponent ever of the startup because you can sit around tables um, that are not siloed. 
because they're not operating at scale and don't necessarily have the structure, which, which is a great and very necessary thing. But in terms of individual development, and this was certainly my experience, the ability and the requirement to think about a problem or a question multidimensionally was a very unique attribute of working in a startup. So that was my first experience in a startup. And from there, got uh, recruited to a company called Fox Hollow that was in its infancy. I think there were maybe 30 people. They were focused on coronary, not peripheral. I mean, it was very, very early that that company, um, we were able to create a lot of value in that through an IPO and then its eventual exit through the sale to EV3. I had then had an opportunity to go work with uh, Fred Kajravi at um, Access Closure, and, mm-hmm. and he is what drew me to that opportunity. I did not, to be honest, have a particular passion for closure devices, didn't really know much about the closure space. I did know that it was fairly stale, that it had been relegated to kind of a commodity status in the cath lab. No cardiologists walked around asking one another, what closure device do you use? And so that um, I think the combination of, of Fred, the opportunity to, to work with somebody who had been such a successful and prolific kind of inventor and, and leader was the big draw. And then secondarily, the intellectual challenge in my head, at least, which was, is it possible to elevate a product out of commodity status and, and assign it a premium for some reason that you invent? That's what we did there at, at Access Closure. And, and, and then that was that was ultimately acquired by Cardinal. And then that sort of led me on to Lutonics, again, very drawn um, to that opportunity by the CEO and the founder, um, Dr. Dennis War, another cardiologist, and loved the opportunity to, to be working with him and, and his team. I was really drawn to that one, though, when I heard drug cut a balloon for the legs. It's so self-evident. You know, it was so obvious to me that that was going to have a role, whether it was the defining role or a guest starring role in the cath lab. I thought that one seemed very obviously big. When we sold that company to Bard, I got involved with Warburg Pincus. They had been a, a an investor in Lutonics and had said, "Hey, what, you know, why don't you work for us for a little while and help us with the portfolio companies in healthcare that we already have?" Silk Road Medical was one of them, so had, had an opportunity to to work on Silk Road early on. Uh, one opportunity in the stroke space, which unfortunately did not translate into success. And then there was this company called HD Plus at the time, Home Dialysis Plus, now mm-hmm. called. I want to get into the, the state outset, but just looking at your, the, the companies you listed, Fox Hollow, Access, Lutonics, all acquired successful outcomes. But how do you look back at those experiences and the fact that they ended in an acquisition? Is it something that you're, obviously you're proud of it, but did you see it as a, as a, as a positive end to that story? Do you sometimes wish you could have taken the idea farther looking back? I mean, it is what it is, but I'm just curious how you look at those, at those acquisitions. That's a great question that I have not contemplated, hence the pause (laughs) and the buying, the stalling for time. I think that, and and I don't mean this to sound dismissive at all. I think that in each of those cases, the technology that was developed and commercialized was better for and made stronger by the companies that acquired it and the other technologies in in that company's bag. I to me those were all devices that were meaningful steps forward and were best when complemented by other devices in in the cath lab. I don't know if that's true for orthopedics or neuro. I've, I've never been in those spaces. I think in cardiology though there is so much leverage and amplifying power 
by being able to present kind of an ecosystem of devices that work well together, that if I were entering or on the board of a company in the cardiology space, that would probably be my natural bias. They reached their most logical destination. They got to where they needed to go, basically, to be successful. I think so. Yeah, good point. So let's talk about Outset. When we spoke last, you'd just gone public. We talked about the Zoom Roadshow and the pros and cons of that and how you came to peace with being denied sort of the actual experience of having a roadshow, which sounds horrible anyway, but traveling around and selling the company sounds like a rough experience. But so what has life been like since, since the IPO? Talk about your experience as, a, as a, the CEO of a publicly traded company. Well, we've been public now for a little over, I suppose, 18 months. So I've had some time to to experience and and reflect on that question. One observation I have about migrating from private to public is that I think it is very easy to fall into the practice of playing defense. It it feels more comfortable because I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, the risk feels higher. It feels a lot higher because the company suddenly, any company, not just outset, is more visible. And so it feels like losses are going to get magnified for risks taken and untranslated. On the other hand, I think playing defense while more comfortable in the moment because it's perceived as lower risk is the is the ultimate risk. Falling into that trap is what is ultimately in a self-fulfilling way um, going to create more risk down the road. So trying to be mindful of that. I think we are at a place as a public company now that we're thinking bigger. We are thinking even bigger. We've never been a company that's thought small, but I think we're we're in a mode of, I mean, we're, we're in a hyper expansion mode. We're in hyper growth mode. We're in hyper kind of offense mode. And that is not just commercially. I think that's across the company th- thinking bigger from policy and advocacy in, in Washington to supply chain to challenges with nursing shortages to what does next generation manufacturing look like? So I, I would say that's one one difference being public is it has emboldened me. I think it's emboldened us. That's maybe one thought. I, I guess another thought though is on the other hand, another difference is is a premium put on consistency and predictability. I think every CEO or management team, private or public, of course, wants to generate results that are are predictable and consistent, but the stakes do feel higher for sure, because we're making public promises to shareholders that we intend to keep. And I think that's been our calling card. So I think consistency and predictability for us, at least are now absolutely paramount. And we intend to be known for that. And and so how do you get there? I, I, I would say Compared to when we were private, we have become meticulous planners and very, very data-driven, Much, probably much less emotion and gut instinct in our decision-making today as compared to you know, privately a couple of years ago, which doesn't make it better. It's just different because we, we are really serious about delivering on the, on the promises that we make to shareholders in addition to patients and providers. And then lastly, maybe another difference, and this is still a story that's unfolding, I would say that as a public company, it probably has enhanced our credibility with customers and perhaps given customers, whether said or unsaid, even greater assurance that we are going to deliver. You know, we, we are well capitalized. We have had the cash to continue to grow our executive team, to grow our, our teams in, in general. 
we almost uh, doubled the size of the company uh, just last year in, wow. in the middle of the pandemic. So we're resourced now to, to really deliver on the promises that we're making customers. And I, and I think there's an element of, okay, this is a public company, you know, et cetera, that probably is a little different and, and advantages us today compared to when we were private commercially. I want to get into your, your story about your origins as to, as to with the, the notion or the objective of bringing dialysis to the home and how it's sort of synced up with the conversation of the day due to COVID and other stresses on, on the healthcare industry. But just staying with public markets for, for one second, and you can answer this question or not, it's up to you. But reading, I read this morning about SPACs and about the troubles they're having. After we talked, the year after we talked, a number of medtech companies went, companies went public via SPACs. Do you have any thoughts as to whether you would have considered that route if you hadn't gone public the good old-fashioned way? Uh, any thoughts on the contrast between going public the way you did and going public via a SPAC? Well, I'll give a disclaimer right away is that I, I am on the board of a SPAC oh, okay. uh, run by one of our long-term investors um, in a group, a group that I think very highly of. So I want to put that out there. So this doesn't come across in any way to be sort of biased or self-serving. Mm-hmm. So your first question, would we have considered it? We did consider it. Um, SPACs were very much on the table and out there in the, in the world when, when we were thinking about raising money through the, the public markets. I think that, you know, and I'll, I'll give you a, a middle of the road answer because it's what I really believe. I, I think SPACs absolutely can be a very good answer for a whole variety of reasons. And I think actually serving on the board of this particular SPAC has opened my eyes to that. I think you can get into transactions that are much more creative, right? Sort of say bespoke to the company's needs. For us, I think our path was the right one because we knew in what we're trying to do, it's so capital intensive that I felt that it was really going to take a village in a highly diversified and very large um, investor base. And that's that's not impossible. It's just sometimes a little bit slower to sort of build that type of support around the company through a SPAC process versus a conventional IPO. What I've learned is there's no one size fits all right right answer, which is which is great. Just in the same way that there's no one way to finance a company privately, that's the right way. Mm-hmm. Oh, great points. So let's focus now on on your company. Take a moment just to kind of give us the quick overview of Outset's mission and Tableau's role in improving dialysis for patients. Where are you able to help? What is your product able to do? Sure, ha- happy to do that. So our sort of reason for being is to reduce the cost and complexity of dialysis for the provider while radically elevating the care experience for the patient. Why that's important, a couple of reasons it's important. Number one, dialysis is is a big problem getting bigger. It is fueled by hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. And those are sort of three trend lines that we, we know are continuing to go up and to the right. As a result of that, Just in the United States alone, there are well over 550,000 people on dialysis, and that number is many times bigger around the world. When patients have to go on dialysis, and this is chronic dialysis for the rest of your life, it is not optional. You are going to go to dialysis three times a week for a couple of hours each time, COVID or no COVID, economic downturn or no downturn, whatever's going on in the world, you're still going to go to dialysis. It is life-sustaining. And the environment in which we entered and got started in this now, gosh, 10 years ago, was one that was not at all hospitable to new technology. In fact, 
there really hadn't been a new device for something like home dialysis, let's say, in over 15 years when we got, eventually got approval for home. And it was kind of a landscape of these like mini equipment monopolies and a very static service model that also hadn't changed. I mean, most, most patients are told you're going to show up on these days at this time, you're going to sit in this chair and be served by this person, kind of whether you like it or whether it's convenient for you or not. And so the moral imperative of the company, and we certainly have a, a financial imperative and promises, as I said earlier, that we make to shareholders to earn the right to deliver on the moral imperative is this, which ultimately is to deliver choice and convenience to, I'll, I'll say the consumer, to any of us who find ourselves or our relatives needing um, dialysis for the rest of their life. And the reason why I think choice and control and flexibility is so vital is I think that it's fundamental to sort of personal liberty, identity, and self-worth. We control every element of our day. Most elements, most decisions were in charge. But when you start on dialysis, much of that choice and personal autonomy is taken from you. And what I've experienced talking to many, many, many people on dialysis is that it really starts to erode at their very sense of self. When those individuals have been able to take the opportunity to be back in control, which is at the home, you decide, you're back in the driver's seat, what days you're going to dialyze, what times are convenient for you. It enables people to go back to work. The unemployment rate, or I should say the employment rate in the dialysis population at large is 19%. That's not because everybody's over the age of 80. It's because you're told this is when the clinic has availability for you. And if that's one o'clock in the afternoon, that may not be consistent with your ability to stay employed. So, so again, being back at home, you can dialyze at 5 a.m. or 10 p.m. or 7 p.m., whenever you want. But I think more important than schedule flexibility is sort of this, fun, to me, a fundamental human right to, as I said, liberty and a, and a, and a fundamental sense of identity and self-worth that we don't realize is actually really very much tied to our ability to make decisions for ourselves. That's amazing. No, in reading one of the stories on your website, the gentleman said that I think it was three times a week, five hours a day that he would have to go and get it. And it was like, he called it a part-time job. Mm -hmm. And that really resonated. And it kind of sounds like, and feels like almost a diabetes community where someone is called upon to make 300 decisions a day to monitor their lives. They lost control of a big part of their lives. So it sounds like a very similar sort of thread with dialysis. You know, you make a great point with, with diabetes because that analogy came to mind for me very quickly, just looking at dialysis before I knew much about it was, well, how is this so much further behind diabetes? Because pa patients who do have type one or type two, they are completely enabled by technology and that's technology that continue to get better and better and better and better every single year. That's been missing from dialysis. Number two, they're at home. And I don't know everything there is to know about the history of diabetes management, but there was a time when patients would go into these diabetes clinics, right? And, and those still exist, but those clinics today are all aimed at allowing patients to just manage diabetes in their home as something that's just a part of their life, not ruling their life. And that felt really different to me than what was going on in dialysis. And so I think to, uh, diabetes actually has really served as a, as a North star to me as what's possible. I know these things are possible, because service providers paired up and partnered with technology providers have created and made that so. And we can do the same thing in dialysis. That's terrific. I was intrigued by the stage you set when you said that there were these forces already in dialysis that sort of made entry difficult for new players. As someone entering this field, what 
drove you? Was it, we have this great technology, we must push it forward. Is it the moral imperative that you sort of mentioned earlier? I mean, certainly financial comes into it to a degree that everything does when you're starting a company. But what do you tell to yourself that convinces you that you're going to change this ecosystem and sort of run through these forces that may be trying to keep you out? I would say it's not just one thing, of course, as it never is in life. As I reflect, listening to your question and reflecting back, I think it was a combination of naivete. Let's be honest. I, <laughs> I really had no idea what I was up against. I can tell you about all these forces now in great detail because I've been in the space for 10 years, but mm-hmm. so did not know what I know today. But so, so a healthy dose of naivete and a healthier dose of anger. I just was pissed. I just... <laughs> And I started getting pissed the, the really the first time that I had the opportunity to visit with someone. He was a Vietnam vet. He was living in a mobile home in San Jose. And one of our early medical advisors had uh, enabled me to connect with him. And I was able to watch him set up this one home device, the only one that had ever been approved. And it just really pissed me off because it was needlessly complex. It was needlessly burdensome. And I think coming out of the cardiology space and, you know, companies like Guide and others, I knew how fast diabetes, another one, I knew how fast the technology was changing and being improved for the consumers and the patients that it served. And why is that not happening here? Like we are making people's lives needlessly onerous. So that's kind of where the anger came from. And then I would say probably the third element for me, um, and if my parents ever listen to this, they'll, they'll probably laugh. Like, I did spend like much of my high school years grounded. (laughs) So I don't love being told not to do something. And and so when early on these impediments, some of the, I'll just call it the attitudes from some of the incumbents started piling up Mm -hmm. and it started to feel more and more like that is so cute that you guys are going to try to do this and you will just see how that goes for you. So that tends to um, inspire and motivate me. So pro- probably some combination of those three things. Yeah, that's a, that is a great answer. So let's go back to, the, to when you joined Outset. What was your mission then? And is it different than the one you have now? Has this idea evolved over these years? The idea around Outset and our device Tableau has, has evolved quite a bit over the years. And I really credit uh, the team of people that have dedicated their kind of brain power to this effort. Um, None of this inspiration around how it evolved was mine. So I I want to be clear about that. We originally started as our company name, Home Dialysis Plus would indicate, with a single-minded focus around home. And I hired a leader early on who had come from Intuitive Surgical, uh, Jamie Lewis. And she grasped on immediately to, I wonder, I wonder if there's any problems to be solved um, in the inpatient setting that, that Tableau would, would be able to, to solve. And I said, you know, I, I have no idea. I don't have time for that. Like, if you're passionate about that, go for it. And she, she, she was like a dog with a bone on this thing and <laughs> just, dog, uh, just researched and researched and researched. And so it turns out that she was really onto something. And so that was, I would say, kind of the first evolution of Outset was, oh, wow, we've developed a solution here that can solve more than one problem. And it turned out that hospitals were really wrestling with a couple of different problems all around cost and complexity, the operational workflows and efficiency or lack thereof of doing inpatient dialysis. And Tableau 
um, was like an ace in the hole because it was super, super easy to use, which meant it was really fast to learn, which meant that the hospitals, you know, could use their own um, nurses and dialysis nurses to deliver the care directly, which meant that the cost of doing so um, went down quite a bit. And so that was the first evolution was we got really focused on acute. And in fact, today, uh, the majority of our revenue is still generated from health systems. The Tableau is being used by a majority of the largest national health systems in the country, many of the biggest regional health systems. So we're, we're, we are very proud of that expansion. I would say the second evolution of the company then became, well, it's bigger than that. Okay. So it's, it's bigger than home. It's bigger than hospital. And this was an inspiration. I'll never forget uh, one of our current VPs of, of sales, Ronnie Eason. He was, he was interviewing with Outset and I had an opportunity to talk with him. And he said, you know, you know what, what Tableau really is? He goes, it is, it's like, it's like an enterprise solution for dialysis. And, and hence the enterprise solution was born. And that was really, I credit Ronnie with kind of the second evolution of the company because it's not just acute. Um, the same hardware platform can be used in the ICU, bedside on the floor, in a skilled nursing home, in a rehab or LTAC, or at home and anywhere in between. And then that really tied it all together in the idea of one hardware, one device, many modalities. And so I would say that's where we are today. And, and then in the spring of 2020, right as the pandemic was kicking off, the final piece of the puzzle dropped in, which was FDA clearance for home. So what does Outset and Tableau look like going forward? What are you projecting will be the larger part of your business five years from now? Is it going to be home? Is it going to be in hospital, in, in, a, in a clinical setting? I don't think we forecast one to be that much bigger than another. I, I think you asked me that over 10 years, and, and frankly, I'd be guessing over 10 years. But I think what, what we've consistently conveyed to um, investors or potential investors is that um, acute certainly is kind of wave one of growth, right? We, we started there earlier. So we've, we've got a, a couple of years of, the, of getting the flywheel going. And so that's kind of wave one. And, and then home is really this whole second wave of, of growth. And so as I think ahead five years, I would say they 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 probably are neck and neck actually for for you know revenue contribution to this to this company. So and and we still have a very long runway in the acute space. I mean, there's several thousand hospitals that deliver dialysis. So we're we're really just getting going there. Interesting. So we're seeing on a broader scale the movement of bringing the hospital to home for a variety of reasons. I think it was already moving in that direction before the pandemic, but the pandemic has certainly opened up a, an opportunity or a need to have more services done at home. You're in a unique position where you were already doing that. I wonder what is the difference between selling in a clinical space and, and, and selling an at-home product? And, and what sort of broader lessons do you think others who want to create a device that delivers a service at home could draw from Outset's story? Well, home is still very much a new frontier for us. So I want to say this or answer this question with all due humility. We we are, are just in the beginning of our, of our journey there for sure. Last year really was our first full year of commercialization. And so the approach we took, number one, was sort of go fast to go slow or go slow to go fast. <laughs> um, that would not be what we want to do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this idea and, and, you know, and drawing back to you asked me a little bit about my background leading up to outset. This philosophy I have is certainly informed by some of the other, I'll just say commercial efforts that I have led, and I'll take ownership over this, where it's been like three, two, one blast off. And I think what I've learned from those experiences is you really learn a lot much later than you think you're still going to be learning. So I think carrying that forward and then and then being particularly 
cognizant of the responsibility that, that, you know, look, we're, we're in somebody's house and there's kids there and there's cats and dogs and family members and things that are very personal and that people really care a lot about. The combination of those two, I think, led us to the conclusion that year one had to be really about like, let's get it right. Whereas in the acute setting, for, for sure, I mean, we, we wanted to refine the model and get it really right. I would say we took getting it right. It's kind of like on steroids, I guess, in the home for all the reasons I, that I think makes sense. So that's one, that's one observation or one comment on our philosophy. I would say maybe the second one in what's different about the home versus the acute is in the home setting and supporting patients. I mean, yes, it's about, it's a, of course, it's about the device and the technology, but it's about so much more we have to be great at delivering an experience. And so, yes, we're, we want to deliver a great experience in, in the acute, but experience is more defined in a more limited fashion, whereas in home, experience we define very broadly. And so we thought early on, like, we have to be exceptional at so much more than the device. And we have to be controlling details that, frankly, are out of our control. The delivery of supplies into the home. Was it on time? Did they get a heads up text or email or phone call? Um, were any of the boxes broken? Were they all delivered across the threshold to the place in the home that the person wants them delivered? Was the person nice? What were they wearing? You know, we we really we go deep on these details and and really bake them into our, our service level agreements with with our partners, our customer experience team. That's really a conversation, you know. Whereas on the acute side, you're going to get a purchase order, or you know, you're going to get hey calling up. We need a thousand more cartridges or whatever. That's very transactional. And the home, the home is not transactional for us. We view the home as a relationship. And a relationship needs not only a good start, but it needs attending over time. It's the care and the feeding and, and the, the expansion of that relationship over time that we really care about. And we think we need to be good at. Are people like myself sort of overstating this move of hospital into the home and we can, I'm not sure if I'm even getting the terminology right, but is it something that is happening that will happen or is it harder than it looks and there aren't a lot of medical device companies with the products, the expertise or the capabilities to really execute on that objective? I cannot speak to whether all aspects of hospital to home are too difficult, you know, in, in the home. Is every device compatible with home use? I don't know. But what I can tell you is like you, I've, I have actually watched with great interest and actually hope that all of this investment that's been poured into hospital to home on the services side will translate to a much more rewarding experience for people like us who probably are, would prefer to stay at home and will have a shorter path to recovery if we do. So I'm, I am very, very hopeful. I'm bullish on it because I think so much capital has been poured into it. And, and, and knowing many of these hospital to home service providers, there's not only a lot of smart money, there's a lot of smart talent. <laughs> so yes, I, I believe that, that that will not only persist, but, but expand and grow. And in that sense, yeah, that becomes a tailwind for home dialysis. But beyond that tailwind, we have, I think, the rise and proliferation of telehealth is really a door opener and expander for patients dialyzing at home if they don't have to, because patients on home dialysis right now, they have to go back to the clinic once a month. Well, if you're living two hours away from the clinic, that's not super convenient. So, so I think now it is under EUA and we'll see if that endures and we certainly hope it will but i think that that will really enable more patients to stay at home through telehealth and then um, and technology we now have a remote monitoring capability on tableau where the provider 
the clinical provider can uh, monitor that that patient's treatment at the home before, during, and after treatment. So I think the combination of, of technology and sort of the acumen of these service providers and then lastly, I would say um, the financial incentives, at least with regard to home, home dialysis, we now have some new financial incentives for providers that we've never had before that, that are acting as a tertiary tailwind. That's a great point. I didn't really consider the payment factor, but that clearly has to fall into place. So let's, that, that's great thoughts on, on that movement. Let's focus lastly on some changes you've had at outset. You, you have a new CFO and you brought in an executive from Amazon to, uh, to work on your IA capabilities. Talk about your, your new executives and, and what that means for the company going forward. We, we have had the opportunity to bring on some uh, incremental firepower at the leadership level. And going back to your earlier question, the differences between being private and public. This is probably a, a great example of the advantages of, of being public and just having access to more capital to be making um, investments that are on the offense. We are in hyper growth mode and we're in you know sort of ambitious mode. And that requires us to have both um, the vision for what we want to be in the next evolution, but also the ability to, to scale the organization. And that's really fundamental to kind of our vital few on an annual basis is operational excellence and, and scale. And so some of the additions to the leadership team, all of them actually, were really in the spirit of, of serving that purpose. So we brought on Steve Williamson as our chief commercial officer. He was running a, an enormous worldwide business for Becton Dickinson. Prior to that, um, CR Bard. He has both, I think, vision and scale and leadership. I mean, as we get bigger and now, you know, it's not dozens of employees, it's, it's hundreds and we operate in Mexico. We also operate in, in the U.S. and over time have, have ambitions to expand internationally, really needing all the leadership or horsepower that, that we can assemble around the table is, is really key. We did hire somebody from AWS Health AI, and we are making, you know, pretty significant investments already have before, but now how do we kind of take our data analytics just to the next level and really focus more on, on sort of clinical insight generation, you know, dialyzing somebody even three times a week gives you access to their circulatory system for 12 to 14 to 15 hours a day. There is a tremendous amount of, of clinical learning that can be pulled out of that kind of physiologic, biologic access that we haven't even scratched the surface of. So we're pretty interested in, in that. And then lastly, we yes, we were able to introduce a new chief financial officer, Nabil Ahmed, who had been with our organization for a year prior. I always describe Nabil as, as kind of an oxymoron in the sense that the, the best description of him is, is actually as a very funny CFO. <laughs> <laughs> he has the distinction of uh, being funny and, and, and smart and wise kind of all wrapped up into one. But I, I feel lucky that we've been able to, even through, through a pandemic, it's, it's, it's difficult to hire the right folks, even under normal circumstances, but particularly over Zoom, our spec hasn't changed. It's always first and foremost, low ego, low ego, sense of humility. So many people, you know, around us here and in all aspects of med tech have, have done amazing, amazing things. We just like people in, you know, in our community that don't like to talk about it. So, so it, it's all about low ego, high capacity and sort of a relentlessly sort of fearless, um, maybe a little bit of the renegade spirit. Um, <laughs> I think we still, we're still going to need to, to keep the fight going here. Just following up on the, on the addition of uh, Jean-Olivier Racine, the, your, where are you with, you mentioned you have the data that's come in. Are you at a point where you know how it can be applied or literally is there, is there like a mountain of data sitting there that you know can be useful 
and, and you're trying to figure out the best way to use it. Where are you in that process? I think our greatest challenge is too many ideas. There are no, yeah, no shortage of inspiration um, around invention. So probably our greatest challenge right now, and 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 something that Jo is um, is leading the charge on, is the down selection and the order of operations. Because in addition to all of the value, I think we can deliver to patients and healthcare providers on the clinical side. We also harness a lot of those uh, the the data analytic applications for our own operational efficiency. For example, um, we have a very large field service organization doing preventive maintenance and responding to any you know machine issues that may come up. If we can move from what today for medical equipment is kind of react and repair. Oh my gosh, something happened. You send the person and then they diagnose it on site. If we can move to predict and prevent and get moved to a place where, and this is our, our aspiration, it's, it's not true today to be clear, but this is our aspiration where we have sort of the central command center of you know, thousands of tableaus nationwide and, and certain tableaus are lighting up because that they have hit some sort of recombinant algorithm of this is flashing and that's beeping and this is going wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying. Sure. Then we proactively reach out to the customer and say, hey, we're going to be by to do X, Y, and Z, or it's time for that PM, or hey, you're going to have a, a filter, you're going to reach a filter saturation point in X number of days, or automated text messages to the biomed and the clinic staff. That's where, that's an example of, of operational efficiency for us that also obviously adds tremendous operating efficiency for the, the customer as well. Final question. You're an enterprise solution for dialysis at the moment with Tableau. What can Outset become? Do you have a vision of expanding beyond dialysis, something else in renal? Does your skill set in tech allow you to move into other diseases areas? What what is there a plan? What's the plan for the future? The plan for the future is first and foremost around really delivering on the vision that we have for the home. I, I mean, again, the, the moral center of this company is delivering on what has been a 10-year promise to ourselves to create much better access to home dialysis through something that's a simple, manageable, not intimidating. And also because we've knocked down some of the structural barriers that are standing in its way. And that's a legacy that we still haven't left. And I think we we still have a long way to go. And so that's really what, what keeps me going. And uh, we are far from done. I will, I will tell you that on all fronts. Beyond that, do I see us moving into other clinical areas of medicine. I don't see that for ourselves today because there, there is just number one, so much opportunity in dialysis. It, it, you know, we do spend over $80 billion on dialysis every year. There's 85 million treatments per year. I mean, on episodes of care basis, there is scarcely a larger market to be in. And that's just the US. So we have talked publicly about kind of starting to you know, think about and analyze opportunities outside the United States. But I think we're, we're really pretty committed to this patient population. And I think we have so far to go in order to reach the legacy that we want to leave. It'd be hard for me to imagine us turning our attention to another disease state at this time. Well, I always enjoy talking to you. And today in particular, this was a great conversation, Leslie. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. It was really fun. All right, Chris Newmarker. Well, how can folks find you out there in social media land? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter uh, at New Marker, just like a new marker. So yeah, always, always happy to, to chat with people. Uh, you know, hear about you know new new cool things going on in the industry. Excellent. I am also on Twitter at MedTechTom. I'm on LinkedIn, Tom S A L E M I S. Please do connect with us there. Please do tag us 
when you share this episode uh, on your social media channels. Please do. What am I going to ask him to do, Chris? Like, follow, subscribe. There it is. I missed that last week. I, I quoted you, but it's so much. You just deliver it so much better. Like, follow, subscribe this podcast on any podcast channel. And uh, you won't miss a future episode of this podcast, the Vice Talks Weekly, or our Intuitive Talks podcast, which will be coming out. We'll have a new episode coming out next week, or our newest podcast that we announced last week on the podcast, uh, Striker Talks. Yeah. So we'll be rolling that out later next There's month. just a ton of cool stuff going on. You got to be there or be square. You got to join in with us. And, and you know what? We got live events coming in just a few months. I'm so excited. I know, I know. We will be there in Boston on May 10th and 11th. And as mentioned before, Device Talks, Minnesota, June 6th and 7th. I don't so. know if I'm right, but I'm just holding on to the hope. We're going to kick Omicron's butt. We're going to do it. We're going to have live events, man. It's going to be awesome. We are going to do it. We are going to do it. All right. Device Talks is back, baby. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Vice Talks is back, baby.